The last time Jake had been home, his older brother had wanted to kill him. This was not stated in the pouty way of siblings who argue and bicker and say things they'll eventually regret. No, in this case, the older brother wished to avenge a great injustice done to him by his younger brother, Jake. A matter of sizable financial inheritances, stolen in secret, the kind of incident that tears entire generations of family apart in irreparable ways. Complicating the matter further was the fact that their mother had orchestrated the entire duplicitous affair. She had placed the figurative knife in Jake's figurative hands and instructed him on the best method for figuratively plunging it into his older brother's figurative back. She had then overheard her enraged older son plotting and pledging his murderous vengeance, which led to her counseling her younger son to flee several counties over and hole up in secrecy on the farm of her brother. Every neighbor whispered gleeful gossip about the wealthy, privileged family, so certain of their religious standing in the community, torn apart in a scandalous tale of a mother's favoritism, a son's fraud, and a brother's violent vengeance. The days turned to months. Months turned to years. Years turned to decades. Life had been so easy for Jake at home. His father had been blind to his abuse of privilege, and his mother had been a coddling enabler allowing Jake to get away with crime after crime, unharmed and unpunished. But these last two decades of exile had been far from easy. It turned out dishonesty and deception were family traits. Even Jake, in all his treachery, had met his match in service to his uncle, who regularly abused the desperate circumstances of his nephew. For two decades, Jake was forced to work long, laborious hours on the farm, with little payment being made under the table. And whenever his uncle lost resources on the farm, whether equipment or livestock, the cost was always skimmed off Jake's meager pay. Promises made were reneged on or altered at the last minute. What's worse, his domineering uncle controlled every aspect of Jake's social life, even forcing Jake to work for many years to pay for the right to marry the love of his life. Jake was powerless and penniless at the hands of his treacherous uncle. But powerless and penniless was better than playing the role of victim to his older brother's rage, now built up over the course of years of bitter distance. At the end of two decades, under the thumb of his uncle, Jake finally made his move. He had stored up enough raw farm resources from his uncle, and he had a large and still-growing family in his care. And so he fled, away from one broken family situation, and back to face another of his own making. But Jake never got far before some truly terrifying news reached his ears. His brother knew that he was coming. And worse, his brother was coming his way. Fighting off panic, Jake came up with a plan to demonstrate his desire for mercy. He split his large family into two groups, in case one group was waylaid by his brother's fighting men, and sent waves of gifts ahead as a peace offering that might quell the oncoming vengeance. He sent messages as well, not addressed to his brother, but rather addressed to his ruler, his boss, putting him in a position of authority over him, hoping for mercy. He was desperate to present himself as meek and powerless, ready to pay for compassion, ready even to kneel in tears and beg for his life and the life of his 11 children. He was ready to fall at the very same feet that he had emerged from the womb grasping firmly. He was ready to fall at the feet of his older brother, who was only older by a matter of seconds. Jacob's hairy, red-headed twin brother, Esau. The story of Jacob is the literal genesis of the nation of Israel. On the evening before finally facing Esau for the first time in 20 years, Jacob had another of his periodic encounters with the Almighty. He would have these visions and he would name things at those places of visions. And after wrestling with this heavenly figure until dawn, Jake had his name changed from Jacob, which means 
grasper of the heel or deceiver or trickster. He went from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God. A new identity from trickster and deceiver to one who encounters holy things and grapples with them and is forever changed in the process. As we, these last few weeks, have examined major theological concepts in Scripture, or rather re-examined, we've seen words that describe both identities of our protagonist, Jacob. Rebellion and selfishness, uh, or rebellion for selfishness and rejection of sacredness, they characterize Jacob, the first identity of this man, stealer of birthrights and blessings. But redemption, resurrection, and rebirth characterize the man who he became with God's help, Israel, who is willing to not only embrace humility and forgiveness, but who is willing to literally embrace the holy presence of the God who created him and then be changed in the process. The story of Jacob is filled to the brim with examples of of today's re-word, the word that stands between the rebellion and rejection of Jacob, his first identity, and the redemption and rebirth of Israel, his new God-given identity. The story of Jacob slash Israel is filled to the brim with a truly beautiful Bible word, a word that brings broken people back together, a word that heals families and unites estranged friends and bridges gaps created by human fallenness between each other, and it's a word that captures our own relationship with God himself. So our new re-word that we'll be re-examining this morning is, Tara, I think I heard you say it, reconciliation, well done. And Jacob's story... Jacob, whose very name captures the essence of what it means to be a follower of God, that his name became Israel, that's, that's the nature of what it is to be a follower of God, is to wrestle with him and overcome. Um, and so Jacob's story is, as I've mentioned, filled to the brim with reconciliation. Jacob is scammed into marrying a woman he doesn't love by his mother's brother, Laban. That's the uncle in the story that I paraphrased. Laban made Jacob work for seven years before granting him the right to marry his daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob loved, but he tricked him, and at the end of seven years, Laban doesn't give him Rachel, Laban gives him Leah, who uh, Jacob does not love, and he had to work another seven years for the right to marry Rachel, so 14 years of hard labor to marry the woman that he loved. Jacob had 12 children born to four different women, Rachel, Leah, and their handmaidens each, and all of this was orchestrated by the treachery of his uncle Laban. So Jacob was no stranger to messed up family dynamics. Does any of that sound like a peaceful, easy situation? Marrying two sisters, having babies with them and their handmaids, being tricked by your uncle. He he had himself tricked his blind father, Isaac, into giving him a blessing that he didn't deserve. He had been encouraged to commit this dishonest fraud by the enabling favoritism of his mother, Rebecca. So his parents, that's a messed up family dynamic as well. He was married to two feuding sisters who jealously competed, and understandably so, but jealously competed for their husband's love and for the offspring that would give them identity and worth. And he had been under indentured servitude to his uncle, only escaping him by sneaking away in the night with his family and a large portion of Laban's flocks. Plus, hanging over all of this like a specter was the murderous rage of his twin brother, whom Jacob had unjustly robbed of of his rightful future. Esau was firstborn, even if it's by a matter of seconds, he was firstborn. He deserved the blessing and the birthright that Jacob had stolen from him and wanted to kill him because of it. 
So broken relationships and ugly family dynamics, that is the story of Jacob, who is the namesake of, of all people of faith. It's, it's filled with broken, ugly family dynamics, broken relationships in need of repair. So that's one story that I want to share with you. There's another story from Scripture that I want to share, similar in some ways to the story of Jacob. It involves a heartbreaking family dynamic as well, and it involves unrequited love and treacherous betrayal as well. It's the story of the prophet Hosea, the first of the minor prophets in, in the tail end of the Old Testament. There's the five major books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then it's the minor prophets, and they're only minor because they're shorter, uh, not because their truth is diminished in any way. Which I don't really understand because Daniel's 12 chapters, Hosea's also 12 chapters. I don't, I don't really know why Hosea's not a major prophet, but I don't make those decisions. But we're going to look at the story of Hosea a little bit. Hosea 1 tells us, it, this is what it says in Hosea 1. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he finds a promiscuous woman named Gomer and marries her. Gomer would, would bear Hosea three children. The first was a son named Jezreel, named after the place where a massacre was committed uh, by the family of the corrupt Israelite king Jehu. So there's Israel and Judah. The Israelite king was Jehu. He was uh, just an awful, awful man, an awful king. And he had committed this massacre in the valley of Jezreel. And that was the end. After that, that that's the event that precipitated the end of Israel, the northern kingdom, altogether. And so the first child is named Jezreel, this place of this massacre. The second um, of Hosea and Gomer's children would be a daughter who would be named Lo-Ruhama, which kind of sounds like a pretty name, but is translated as not loved, which is not pretty at all, um, since the kingdom of Israel would no longer be loved by their God. And the third child, another son, would be named Lo-Ami, which means not my people, since Israel was no longer God's people they had rejected him, and he was no longer their God. So once again, the names of those three precious children are as follows. The site of a massacre, not loved, and not my people. Not to mention number four, Gomer, which I don't know what that means. I just know that her name is Gomer, and it's a really ugly name. But can you imagine naming your child in this way? Can you imagine naming your child Sandy Hook or Columbine? Or like the name of some famous massacre site? Can you imagine naming your baby girl unloved? Can you imagine naming your baby boy disowned, unwanted? Why does God make Hosea, his own servant, marry a prostitute and give his beautiful children such brutal, ugly names? Well, if you think that's rough, check out what God says in the next chapter. Oh, but this is what it says in Hosea chapter 2. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. This is speaking of Gomer. This is really speaking of Israel. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the Baals, that's the false gods. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. By this point, Hosea was written around the time, uh, the king's, the, the line of 
Israel ended around in the 800s, I think, um, BC. And Jacob was, I don't know, 1500 years before that or so. So in that period, Israel's identity had degraded from wrestlers with God and overcomers. That's what Israel means. Um, chosen and beloved by their creator, started with Jacob, and they had degraded all the way down to adulterous whore, eager to sell herself to whichever pagan god woos her with gifts of splendor and promises of power. Israel would go from Ruhama, loved one, to Lo Ruhama, not loved. They would go from Ami, God's people, to Lo Ami, not God's people anymore. Why? Well, those first three words we looked at, rebellion and rejection, play a big part in it. An unwillingness to stay faithful to the one who first loved them. So judgment would come. Israel's infidelity would be laid bare for all to see. All her special blessings ripped away, her promises retracted, her abandonment complete. They would face rebuking and removal. Two more re-words, by the way, rebuking and removal. Removal from the land, literally, through exile. They would face rebuking and removal as well as punishment and ruin. Why? Because of Israel's adultery, her lewdness, her forgetfulness of who she belongs to, who they are bonded to. God's faithful love that he continually poured out to his people Israel was constantly repaid with selfishness and pride and indecency. Israel, wrestles with God, had devolved back into Jacob, treacherous deceiver. And so, heartbreakingly, they would become not loved and not his people. It's a brutal story. In many ways, both Jacob in Genesis 32 and Gomer in Hosea 1 are portraits of a third Bible character, one that's even more famous than either of them. Though this character is found in a fictional parable, there's nothing fictional about what this character teaches us about reconciliation. The story is found in Luke 15. It's the third of three related parables Jesus offers to a group of Pharisees and religious leaders who are sneering at Jesus for teaching tax collectors and disreputable sinners. Jesus is teaching the lowest of the low. These Pharisees swoop in and they turn up their nose and they sneer at Jesus for for teaching these people. So Jesus is, in other words, teaching a bunch of Jacobs and Gomers. Probably very literally deceitful tax collectors and very literally prostitutes. That's who he's spending time with and teaching. These people swoop in, they sneer at Jesus, they they condescend the people he's teaching. Um, But when Jesus hears their pride and their self-serving condescension, he tells them these three stories of lost things that are found to great rejoicing. Anybody know what the first two are? The parable of the lost, lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. And then the third, the most famous, and the story of the three that hits the hardest, the parable of the lost son the prodigal son. Like Jacob, or Israel, in the book of Genesis, this son, this prodigal son, had claimed his birthright and his inheritance in a scandalous manner. He just went up and demanded it. He didn't wait for his father to give it to him at the proper time. He just went up and demanded it. Kind of like Jacob. Like Jacob, this son wound up on a farm, desperate to be reunited with home. For Jacob, it was his uncle's sheep farm. For the prodigal son, it was a pig farm. And pigs were a dirty, unclean... It was unlawful to be around pigs. That's how low he had stooped. Like Jacob, this son was willing to grovel at the feet of the family member that he had selfishly wronged. So Jacob is willing to grovel at the feet of Esau. The prodigal son is willing to grovel at the feet of his father. And then, like Gomer 
who represents Israel in the book of Hosea, the son in the parable was unfaithful to the one who loved him most. He treats his father with extreme disrespect and, and is incredibly unfaithful, just like Hosea is unfaithful in her promiscuity. Like Gomer representing Israel, this son was wooed by the earthly jewelry of power, privilege, and profit. Like Gomer representing Israel, this prodigal son was stripped naked and left to wallow in thirst and shame, wanting even to eat the pods of peas that the pigs were eating, feeling the weight of being low Ruhama, not loved, and low am I, not my people, certain that he was unloved and unworthy of belonging with his father and his father's people. So Jacob and Gomer and the prodigal son, three characters who represent humanity in general and myself in particular. Three characters in need of reconciliation. How do their stories end? I've told you the first part of of these three stories, but how do they end? Well, in the same way that all three characters are united in their failures and their weaknesses, all three characters are likewise united in their shared experience of thoroughly undeserving and transformatively unwavering reconciliation on the part of God to them. Both are, or all three are, are absolute failures and all three experience a totally transformative sort of reconciliation. So let's look at all three. Let's finish these stories. When we last left our friend Jake, every relationship was in need of reconciliation to his uncle, his wives, and most significantly, significantly the twin brother that he had betrayed 20 years earlier, Esau. Well, in Genesis 30, there's a degree of reconciliation between Jacob and his two bitterly jealous and contentious wives. There's a bit of reconciliation there. And you'd be bitter and contentious too, by the way, if you were sister wives who knew your shared husband only loved one of you. That would be a really ugly situation. But because of prayers offered by these women, God gives reconciliation into their deeply patriarchal social structure through the form of sons, which unfortunately in that day and age was the only way that a woman could have identifiable value to the men who dominated their lives. I'm thankful that's not how our social structure is designed now, but in those days, the only way a woman had worth was to bear children, preferably sons. And so God honors them, reconciles them to their husband by giving them sons, 12 of them. God brings reconciliation to this screwed-up marital household through the birth of these sons, who would eventually become the namesakes of the 12 tribes of Israel. Tremendously important sons, and that was an act of reconciliation. And so reconciliation gets the better of 13 years of jealousy and bitterness. One chapter later, in Genesis 31, with the aid of divine intervention, Jacob was reconciled to his abusive and dishonest uncle Laban. They made a pact of peace not to harm one another. Jacob runs off with a bunch of his flocks. Laban pursues him wants to kill him, wants to fight him and get all of his stuff back, especially because he says, Jacob, you left in the middle of the night. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my daughters and grandchildren. You didn't even give me that chance. But God intervenes to Laban and says, don't you say a bad word about my Jacob. And so Laban doesn't. And instead, they make a pact of peace not to harm one another. It's a covenant that pleases Laban because he makes Jacob promise to care for both of his daughters, Rachel and Leah. And it pleases Jacob because the powerful Laban would relent from his anger, not pursue him and not kill him. And so in that situation between nephew and uncle, reconciliation gets the better of 20 years worth of distrust and shady management. But it's two chapters after that, in Genesis 33, where the most beautiful reconciliation in Jacob's family occurs. 
Jacob sends all these gifts of hundreds of goats and sheep and camel and cattle and donkeys and servants. He sends all these gifts ahead of him across the river to meet Esau. Wave after wave of gift to try and win Esau's mercy. He sends messengers begging for acceptance and forgiveness. As I mentioned, he doesn't call, he doesn't call him brother. He doesn't deserve the title of brother after what he did to Esau. He instead calls him Lord, Master. He shows some humility. He divides his possessions and the people of his tribe into groups in the hopes that if Esau attacks that group, then maybe this group can flee and be saved. Um, And with that, Jacob awaits his meeting with Esau. He wrestles that evening with an angel, is, is transformed, his identity is transformed in some special way. And the very next morning after that encounter with, with the presence of God, the very next morning, Jacob crosses the river with his children and wives in front of him, by the way, to form some sort of human compassion shield. Look at all these kids I got. Please don't hurt me. Um, <clears throat> and he finally meets the object of his fear and regret. He's prepared to have 20 years worth of vengeful wrath poured out on him. And as he approaches his twin brother, he bows down low to the ground seven times, Seven is a biblical number that means perfection and completion. So when he bows seven times, it means he is completely and utterly humbled in the presence of his brother. He he is recognizing that he deserves 20 years worth of punishment at the hands of his loved one. But instead of a sword to the neck or a spear to the chest, Jacob is greeted with this scene, and I'm quoting Genesis 33, 4 to 9. But instead of vengeance... Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Notice he doesn't say your brother, your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down to Esau. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all those flocks and herds that I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob deserves death and instead receives reconciliation, which gets the better of 20 years worth of deception, treachery, and simmering vengeance. The broken son humbles himself in the presence of the fellow son whom he had betrayed. Jacob stole Esau's blessing, but Esau gives Jacob with a new blessing reconciliation. I love that scene. Jacob's falling down on the ground, calling a master, begging for mercy, and Esau instead hugs him, kisses him, and calls him brother. See, I don't need any of these gifts you give me. I'm just glad to have you back. In the story of Hosea and Gomer, let's wrap up that story real quick. In the story of Hosea and Gomer, Gomer is a portrait of unfaithful Israel. Israel slept around with every idol it could find, whether it was the false gods of their neighbors or the idols of pleasure and profit and power. Because of these constant betrayals, these constant adulteries, God would would abandon them to their lewdness and their pride. Israel would be identified by the brutally harsh names of not loved and not my people. God would annul the marriage he had made and retract all his vows because his bride kept whoring herself out. But listen a little closer to the harshness of Hosea 1, 2, and 3, and more of the picture comes into view. Hosea isn't just to marry Gomer and abandon her to her her adulterous ways. He is to love her in the same way that God loves Israel. 
Here's Hosea chapter 3. I'm going to read all of Hosea chapter 3, but don't worry, it's only five verses long. It says, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Sorry, afterwards the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. And that's how the the story of Hosea wraps up. Love her relentlessly. Buy her back. Take care of her just as I am loving Israel and will one day redeem and bring Israel back. And what will God do when they come trembling to him? Well, he already told Isaiah. Here's what it says in chapter 1. It says, call him, this, the third son is Loamai. Call him Loamai, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God yet. And there's that beautiful yet. There's this ugly thing, not loved, not my people, and yet. The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashores, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. And what's another word for people coming together? Reconciliation. In chapter 2, right there in that really ugly passage I read, all that talk of rebuking and judging and stripping naked, it also says this. She, Israel, will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then, finally, she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. And who's Israel's husband, by the way? God himself. Therefore, I am now going to allure her, God says. I'm going to allure Israel. I'm going to draw her back. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. It's not, I'm way above you. It's, I am right there with you. I am your husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. God continues in verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is not just 20 years of betrayal and rebellion and rejection as it was for Jacob and Esau. This is many centuries of rebellion and rejection. But when God's people wander in the desert and thirst for him, when they have everything stripped from them, when they call out for their beloved God, he will beckon to them. He will run to them and embrace them as Esau does for Jacob or as the father of the prodigal son does when the son returns. He will change our identity from Jacob, trickster and deceiver and lo Ruhama, not loved and lo Ami, not my people. He will change all of that to Ami and Ruhama and Israel. Put that together and this is your identity. His beloved people who wrestle with him and overcome. He will change us from lowly deceiver not loved, not his people, to this beautiful thing, his beautiful people, his beloved people who wrestle with him and overcome. Before we can even get down on our knees and beg him, never mind just seven times, we would burn through knee pads and yoga mats with all the kneeling we'd need to do, bowing, asking for forgiveness to our God. 
So never mind just seven times. Before we can even reach the ground, though, before we can even fall on our knees, he's already there welcoming us with open arms. Before we can even hit the ground and beg, he's already saying, it's okay, I forgive you, I love you, you are my people, you are my loved one. Reconciliation only happens with those we love the most and who we have hurt the most. I'm experiencing this a lot in my family, especially with my mom. I can't be reconciled to a stranger. I can't be reconciled to a friend who I laugh with every day and have great times with every day. I can't be reconciled to my wife when we're holding hands and smooching on park benches. (laughs) Or for us, more like watching SNL when the girls are at Awanas. That's about as romantic as we get, watching TV together. But I can't be reconciled to her when we're happy with each other, when we're in love, when we're... That's not when reconciliation happens. As in my family, reconciliation is only required when one beloved person deeply hurts or offends another deeply loved person. Like Jacob to Esau, like Hosea to Gomer, like the prodigal to his dad, like Israel to God, and like me to my creator. And that's the deeper meaning for each of us this morning. Reconciliation is a necessary step in our salvation process. We have been rebellious, we have rejected our God, and we need to be reconciled to our beloved bridegroom. And that's God, that's Jesus. Reconciliation is not a common word in the Bible, even though stories of reconciliation are frequent. So the stories are there, the word is not there. The word reconciliation is not common. But it seemed to be an important word to the Apostle Paul. Of its 15 uses in the Bible, all exclusive to the New Testament, all but three are found in the Pauline epistles, the letters that Paul wrote. And in each of these instances, one thing becomes clear about reconciliation. It comes with a cost. This was true for Jacob, who was willing to send hundreds of living livestock to Esau. This was true for Gomer, excuse me, who was brought back by her husband for 15 shekels of silver and a bunch of barley. It was even true for the prodigal. It cost his father his best robe, a fancy ring, some new Nike sandals, as well as that special fattened calf he'd been saving. So Jacob, Jacob paid the cost of seeking forgiveness. Hosea paid the cost of redemption, buying Gomer back. And the prodigal's father paid the cost of celebration. All three are present in the cost paid by Christ. Through the shedding of his blood, and whenever Paul talks about reconciliation, he always talks about Jesus' death, his sacrifice, and his blood. All three are present. All three of these are present in the cost paid by Christ. He purchased our forgiveness through his blood. He bought us back from sin and death. That's who we were enslaved to, and he bought us back from that. And he financed the reunion celebration that will take place when we meet our maker and are embraced for eternity. Forgiveness, redemption, celebration. There's a cost for all of those, and Jesus was that cost. Listen to Romans 5. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So there's that blood element, that cost element. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we are reconciled to God through Jesus' death and are walking in a new life. Here's Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Making peace is reconciliation. How does it happen? Through his blood on the cross. 
Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you. There's that word reconciled again. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Reconciled to Christ through God's death and now innocent in his sight. Or here's Ephesians 2. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. And here Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles who hate each other. But God's reconciling them. He's making peace is what he says, which is reconciliation. And in one body to reconcile, there's that word again, reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God through how? Through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So not only are we reconciled to God through Jesus' blood, we are reconciled to each other, even reconciled to our enemies through the cross. And finally, this powerhouse passage in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who did what? Reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One pa- that's what, like four verses? And reconciliation's in there five times. It's a big deal. Jesus reconciled us to God through his death. He paid that cost. And now he asks us to be ambassadors of that reconciliation, to take that reconciliation out into the world, embracing others like Esau and redeeming others like Hosea and celebrating the salvation of others like the prodigal's father. We have been reconciled so that we can reconcile. We can be the agents of that reconciliation, just like Esau, just like Hosea, just like the prodigal's father. The cost has been paid. Reconciliation already been purchased. We need not fear the results of our betrayal and treachery and tendency to prostitute ourselves out to power and pride and profits. That reconciliation has already happened. Obviously, there's a role to play. Stop prostituting yourself stop betraying stop being treacherous all those but the cost of reconciliation is paid as god told hosea and hosea 2 i will show my love to the one i called not my loved one i will say to those called not my people you are my people and they will say you are my god and jesus enabled that hosea is looking forward to that time he's looking forward to christ we betray our brother jesus But he greets us with a kiss on the cheek and a warm embrace before we can even finish begging for his forgiveness. That's reconciliation. We sell ourselves to whichever rebellious desire is within our grasp, but he buys us back and changes our identity to his beloved people who wrestle with him and overcome. That's reconciliation. And though we selfishly demand more and more and more for ourselves like the prodigal, we abuse our blessings as children of the Almighty like the prodigal, Still, he patiently waits for us to return. And then he throws the mother of all celebrations when we finally tire of the world's dark emptiness and return to him. He throws a party, kills the fattened calf, puts a ring on our finger and a robe and sandals on our feet, and he celebrates. He gets everyone there to celebrate. That's reconciliation. Like resurrection or redemption, 
Reconciliation is a past, present, and future reality. We have been reconciled by Christ, we are being reconciled by Christ, and we will one day be finally and fully reconciled to Christ. We see it in the writings of Paul. We see it in the end of all things, in the final victorious reconciliation written about in John's Revelation. It's not always explicitly labeled, but it's there in every corner of Scripture. God is reconciling us to himself. Like Jacob, like Gomer, and like the prodigal son, we are not deserving of reconciliation. We are selfish deceivers, we are scheming betrayers, we are vulgar adulterers, and we are prideful sinners. We are not deserving of reconciliation. But Jesus pays for our reconciliation anyway. Reconciliation only happens when there is a betrayal between two beloved parties. Well, when the enormity of our betrayal meets the enormity of his love, an enormous reconciliation occurs. Thanks to Jesus, our God calls us his beloved once again. He calls us his people once again. He welcomes us home once again. He, he dusts us off and clothes us in royal robes once again. He wraps us once again in the embrace of a forgiving brother or a weeping father squeezing his wayward son. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it says in sorry, 2 Corinthians 5. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is our identity. Loved once again, made his people once again, allowed to wrestle with him once again, and reconciled to God in order to become agents of reconciliation to the world around us. That's who we are. And the stories of reconciliation throughout scripture make that clear. Once we were this, now we are this. Reconciled, loved, called his people, able to wrestle with him and overcome. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that through your sacrifice and through your resurrection, we are finally, beautifully reconciled to our Father. Father, we thank you for these stories, the stories of Jacob and Hosea and the prodigal. We, we know that we need to identify ourselves in these stories as Jacob the deceiver, as Gomer the unfaithful, as the wayward prodigal. That's us. But that's not us anymore. Jesus, thank you that through your blood we are reconciled, that we are brought back to relationship with our Father, with our Creator. You are a good Father, God. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for paying the price, um, as all reconciliation requires. Thank you for paying the price of your Son so that we can be reconciled to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would take this reconciliation we've been gifted and share it with the world around us. Help us to be agents of reconciliation, as it says, says in 2 Corinthians 5. Help us to take this reuni reunification that we have, this return to love, and spread it and share it. We pray that you would empower us to do that, Holy Spirit. And in all things, Jesus, we bring praise to you, our reconciler. We pray them in your name. Amen. All right, reconciled brothers and sisters, have a great week. Find ways to be agents of reconciliation this week. but it's there in every corner of scripture. God is reconciling us to himself. I can't be reconciled to my wife when we're holding hands and smooching on park benches. 